You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin by calling in the spirits. So I call out first to your ancestors and to mine, to all of those people who have gone before us, who have lived well, who have died well, who met the challenges of their day and grew, who matured and grew rich in their understanding of spirit, of heart, and of body, of how to be here in the world in a good way. And I call out to these ancestors to be with us here and to help us, the living, help us to take these rich lessons, this great legacy, and to make it manifest in our own lives so that we can continue in the great um, expression of the gifts that humans have to bring to the collective. And I ask these ancestors to be with us here today to circle around and to help us to do what we are called to do for those who are coming. And with these ancestors gathered around, bringing all that is good and true and beautiful into our lives, we give thanks. We give thanks for their circling around and holding us well. And with their presence around us, let us drop our energy from our heads to our hearts, from our hearts to our bellies, and from our bellies into the earth. And in that first touch of your energy to the earth's energy, let us take a moment and give thanks for this day. Great, great gratitude for life. Gratitude for the beauty in life, the diversity, and for all those gifts your life has brought you, you have not yet figured out how to open, because they came disguised as trials and tribulations. So we give thanks to the earth for all that has been in our lives, all that has been on this path that has brought us to this moment. We give thanks for this moment, and we give thanks for all that is to come, and we give thanks to the earth for this moment of wonder and awe of life itself. And with great, great gratitude in our hearts, let us send our energy down through all the layers of the earth, radiating our gratitude out into each layer as we move down through the layers of the earth to the very center of the earth to anchor ourselves firmly there with our own intention to be grounded. And we draw the energy of the earth up, calling all the wisdom of manifestation up into our being, into our circle here, into the day. And in this way, we draw up the energy of restoration and rejuvenation, of replenishment. And we call these energies up through all the layers of the earth, up into our body and into our belly. And we ask these energies to help us to learn to be ever more grounded and centered. To know how to take a stand and what we stand for. To have a sense of home and a sense of hearth. And to have these energies in a way that they go with us and are not locked to a particular place or time or people, but opens to a sense of the earth as our home. And these people all around us, no matter how strange they seem to us as our human family. And so we call out to the energy of the earth and we ask her to help us to learn to use these energies to cultivate in ourselves a sense of belonging a sense of place and home, a sense of connection, a sense of interconnection, and ultimately help us to come to this place of oneness and to know our place in the great fabric of all things. We ask the energy of the earth to help us in this way, to come into right relationship with ourselves. And from that right relationship with others, right relationship with our environment, and right relationship with all the beings and all the energies, all the powers of the invisible world. And with the great, generous, abundant, and beautiful assistance of the energies of the earth, let us draw our energy up from our bellies to our hearts, and our hearts to our minds, and up and out the crown chakra, out to the top of our head to the sky, and whatever weather it holds for you here today, 
receive that blessing and move out through the cosmos, out through the atmosphere into the cosmos and all the way up to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you know that power, name it for yourself and call it down. Drawing this energy into yourself, into your day, into these proceedings. And in this way, we call in the fundamental energy, the essence energy of blessing. And may this energy come in and bless all things. The energy of protection, the energy of generosity and benevolence. And in this way, we call in all the wisdom of the cosmos. Help us to find the mentors. Help us to find the champions that we need. Help us to be the mentors. Help us to be the champions that others need. Help us to show up in a right use of will and to bring our gifts to the world. And so we call this energy in from the sky, down through all the layers of the sky, into our head, from our head to our heart, and our heart to our belly. And we just take a moment and feel the energy of the sky and earth, these two great legendary lovers coming together inside of ourselves and opening up, awakening this energy of the Tao, of this big love from which all things of form are born. So we give thanks to this energy and enjoy this dance within ourselves and let it awaken the spirit of the heart. And we call out to the heart to be with us here today and to open in the great crucible of change that it is. And we call out to the heart's unique capacity to draw up the fiery passions of the belly that know why we are here and to draw down the crystal clarity of the mind that is wondering, and how do I do that in the time I have been born? And we call these energies together and we let them dance in, a heart, in our hearts in a way that gives birth to a third sacred thing, which is our sense of why we are here, our own unique genius and the gifts that we are to bring to the world. And may you find in that very same human heart the courage that you need to do something in this day, large or small, to bring your true gifts manifest in the world. So we give thanks to the spirit energies for gathering round the earth below, the sky above, and may we be held well here today in these proceedings. May we say what needs to be said, and may we hear what needs to be heard. May all things go forward in a way that are good for all living things. So with great gratitude to the spirit world, I turn my attention to the spirits of the people and your generosity. I give special thanks to Joe and Indrik, to Mary Pat and Deb, and all of the other listeners who have been able and willing to donate financially to the show, to help us to pay the bills and keep the show on the air, and to keep the archives of the show and every new show free to anyone who has the capacity to get onto the internet and find them. And so I give great thanks to those of you who are able to donate financially, large and small. It doesn't matter. Every single ruble, euro, dollar, or whatever goes directly to keeping the show on the air. And I am grateful for that. So if you are moved in any way by the show, moved to inspiration or irritation, distraction or focus, whatever it is, know that you have been moved in the heart. And it is allowing ourselves to be moved into action by what moves our heart that is at the essence of shamanism. So be shamanic and do something in some way to support the show. Live the teachings. Share them at your journey circle. Link the site to your site. Do whatever it is that you are able to do to help the show to grow, to stay vital um, and alive. And for all that you do that helps me do what I do. I give great thanks. And so for those of you that don't know how to do that or haven't seen it yet, we have a brand new website, whyshamanismnow.com. All the archives of all the shows for five years are there, um, as well as a donate button if you choose to donate. Um, If you don't like doing things online, that's perfectly fine. Just email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org, and I would be happy to give you a regular old address to send a regular old check. So thank you, everyone. So our guest today is Evelyn Reisdyke. Evelyn, thank you for being with us here today. Oh, and thanks for beginning with such wonderful prayers. So the topic of our show is Evelyn's new book, Spirit Walking, A Course in Shamanic Power. 
So for those of you who don't know, Evelyn is a nationally recognized shaman teacher and healer, speaker, artist, and author. Um, she is the author of this book, Spirit Walking, and um, another book, Modern Shamanic Living, A New Explorations of an Ancient Path. She's also the author of regular columns and numerous articles on shamanism, um, on living in harmony with earth, and on how ancient healing methods support individuals to feel more whole, confident, connected, and empowered. Evelyn works with individuals, workshop groups, and conference participants to open people's hearts and inspire them to live more joyfully, fulfilling, and purposeful lives. She is um, in a joint practice with Allie Knowlton at Spirit Passages, um, which is in Maine, and that is their training center for advanced experiential shamanism. Evelyn offers a full complement of workshops, presentations, long-term trainings in advanced shamanism, eco-spirituality, and shamanic healing. As founding members of True North, both Evelyn and Allie um, are founding members of True North, which is an integrated medical center I've actually mentioned several times on the show in uh, Maine. And they collaborate directly with medical and other complementary health uh, practitioners in bringing the healing of spirit, mind, and body to people who arrive at their center from across the U.S. She is also a contributor to the book Spirited Medicine, uh, which is the most recent book by the Society of Shamanic Practitioners. And so I'd also like to thank the Society of Shamanic Practitioners for sponsoring this series. If you'd like to find out more about the SSP, you can go to shamansociety.org. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Evelyn, um, there's a couple things. If you want to go to her author website, it is evelynrysdyke.com. So E-V-E-L-Y-N-R-Y-S-D-Y-K.com or um, spiritpassages.com. Although probably right now they could just Google spirit walking and probably get to you. Don't you think, Evelyn? Oh, I think so. Somewhere, something will get them there. Um, okay, and we are live, so you are welcome to call in this week. Um, the number is 512-772-1938, or you can Skype in from co-creatornetwork.com site, or you can just email me at christina at lastmasscenter.org, and I'll read your question on the air. So, thank you again for joining us today. I'm very excited. Um, so if you reflect on your life, um, looking back now with the great perspective of hindsight, what do you think would be the most pivotal moment that brought you into shamanism in the first place? Well, I'd have to say that um, my intentional entrance into shamanism was connected to um, severe depression that I had in my early 30s. Uh, it was one of those uh, experiences where the wheels completely come off the cart and life is not uh, anything that you might imagine any longer. And I was doing all the good earth plane things uh, about pulling myself up by my bootstraps. I was going to psychotherapy sometimes twice a week. I was taking medication to be able to sleep in the, uh, at night. It was the pre-Prozac days. And uh, although I was improving, it was not uh, as rapidly or as uh, deeply as I would like. So I, I was searching for something else. And I picked up a catalog for the Open Center in New York, which is like Omega and so many other centers that offer lots of different programs. And I have to say, at the time, I was an advertising executive in New York. I had been an artist all my life. I was in the visual arts then. And... Um, so most of the things in that catalog as an advertising executive were uh, curious and strange to me, uh, although I did stumble across Michael Harner's The Way of the Shaman. He was teaching it then, and I actually took the class down in Soho in Manhattan. And I, having had an interest in tribal art and um, masks and ritual and uh, paleolithic uh, artwork, all kinds of Things had been brewing around that made sense to try the way of the shaman. I had actually read the little tiny paperback version of Michael's book when it first came out uh, a few years prior. And uh, so I took the train in and uh, sat on the floor in a dance studio in Soho, Manhattan, with about 150 other people. And uh, Michael is a brilliant storyteller, so probably half the first day he was telling wonderful stories and um, making himself laugh and making all the rest of us laugh. And uh, finally, we were about to do our 
first journey, and uh, I I like to describe depression as kind of like those um, horses that are pulling a cart and they put the blinders on the side. So the feeling is that the world narrows to a very small kind of tunnel of experience when you're depressed. So we are now lying down in Michael's workshop. We have our little blindfolds on, and he's about to beat the drum. And the first thing I experienced upon entering into the spirit world, it was a low world journey at that point, was the feeling of possibility coming back. No specific possibility. wasn't that suddenly I had all the answers, far from it. But the feeling of opening up, the feeling of potential and possibility flowing back into my life. It's like the tide started to come back in. And it was a profound experience because in that one first journey, some it's like a switch was flipped inside of myself. And it wasn't that my old self was coming back either. It was something far more expanded, far richer, and that really was a turning point for me for the whole rest of my life, the, the whole next phase that I consider myself still in, that next phase where my life opened up tremendously, my vision opened up tremendously, my uh, feeling of possibility opened up tremendously. So I owe a great debt of gratitude to Michael for introducing me to this way of entering the spirit world. It's certainly the way that we knew as children. It's the way of our ancestors. It's one method out of very many. There are lots of doors that go into that same room. But that feeling of stepping into a, um, a more vibrant and authentic experience of being human uh, is something that I'm eternally grateful for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so then, so, so that the tide comes in, <laughs> the tide changes, the ocean changes, um, and you continue for decades, really learning and growing and transforming and deepening. So what became the spark for this particular book? I mean, it's certainly not the first thing that you've done. So what, what, what really sparked that, this, this particular book, Spirit Walking, into existence? What I noticed, not only of uh, the people that I was training, but the people that had been trained by other Western practitioners, is it was a, a feeling of a hit-or-miss sense of connection. Very different than the tribal shamans that I had studied with. I studied with tribal shamans from Nepal and Tuva and Far Eastern Siberia and the Native American uh, practitioners, they wouldn't call themselves shaman, but medicine people, people from South America. And they had a different way of being in the world. It was a feeling of being much more profoundly connected, much more profoundly joyful, even though they had, uh, in many, many cases, terrible experiences in their lives. There was a different way of being in the world that they expressed that Western practitioners sometimes had, didn't always have, and in many cases didn't have at all. They were much more technicians. And I thought there's some piece of this that needs to be decoded because in the presence of truly powerful tribal shaman, there's a feeling of immediate connection. There's a feeling that they are completely at ease in their environment, even when they're not in their, in their home range. There's this sense of, um, well, it's, it's a sense of feeling at home, and you feel at home with them, even though they know a great deal more than you do about their particular culture, and they have maybe you know, decades older than you and have uh, far more experience. It isn't the experience that is the difference. It is the way that they are in the world. And that way, to me, is about a deep kind of way of being in relationship. Western people don't necessarily do relationships very well. If the 
at least if the divorce specific uh, statistics in the West are any indication, we struggle with relationships. And yet the tribal salmon that I've been with were in complete, it's like they were woven into the fabric of the spiritual world. They had deep, profound experiences of being in ordinary life. Um, um, one example is uh, Grandfather Misha, he's the last Ulti shaman of the um, people of southeastern Siberia, the, the, the Ulti people, last male shaman. He was not in his home range. He was in California when I met with him, and he was talking to the animals and the birds and the plants all around him, introducing himself as a stranger in this particular land and interacting with the environment in a way that you don't necessarily see a Western practitioner do. He was introducing himself. He was engaged with talking to the grasses. It is a very short stature, and so it was easy for him to run his hands across the top of the grass as he walked. And there was this, this sense of not just intellectually being in connection, which we do also do very well in the West, but being heart-connected, respectful, being in that place of honoring the spirits of the grass or the trees or the birds as family, as, um, as a kind of precious, revered, co-traveler on the path. And again, not in an intellectual way, but a profoundly heart-centered, woven into every cell of their body kind of way. And I thought there must be a way to support Western people to be able to step into that way of knowing, to step into that way of being. And my sense of it, I think probably because of my history of, uh, of being depressed, was that was also a way for us to as individuals and people. When we change our way of knowing ourselves and how we are we fit and are woven into the rest of creation and then make those relationships conscious and um, go about them in a reverent way, we are no longer um, suffering from that sense of isolation that depression causes we are far less anxious because we know we are supported by beings all around us. We're never alone. And it's, again, not no longer an intellectual understanding, but this visceral way of knowing so that it, it helps to put us back in that container. And my sense is, as people step into that, they treat themselves, other people, and all the beings around them very differently. I notice in your book you call it a reverent participatory relationship and this made me think a lot about you know students who who you know get they need to relate and create a relationship but as soon as they they associate reverence with a kind of passivity almost like a worship like going to church and letting everything happen to you and 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 it's always mm-hmm. um I feel like I'm always sort of goading people <laughs> you know, to find that it, it's like, who wants to play with you if you're the kid that just sits around and bows, you know, <laughs> you know, be, be someone the spirits want to play with that. So I, I really like this fact that it's, it's reverent because that is such an important part that understanding I'm not special. I'm just one thing in this big complex web of things, but I need to participate. I can't just be, um, you know, bowing to everything and not doing anything. <laughs> you know, I need to bring my stuff too. Absolutely. And it's, it, you know, in some ways it's like an intimate relationship. You want to be in that place of honoring that you have an equal partner, but you have to participate in the relationship. You have to talk with your partner. You have to engage in working out whatever is coming up. You have to negotiate if some change has to occur. It's, Something that is, um, I'll use the W word, it's work. (laughs) You know, it's work, but it's right livelihood kind of work. You know, it's heart work. 
Yeah. It's, it's an active way of being in the world. You're right. It's not passive in the same way that an intimate relationship can't be passive. Well, and there's this kind of knuckleheaded new age idea that if, if, it's, if it's all right and spirit's with us, everything's going to be easy. And I like to say, well, it will be effortless. <laughs> it's still a great deal of work. And it's part of what I like about the, the, a lot of the South American shamanic teachings is they, they always are talking about human beings are, are, are really lost without their work the right work, that we, we need things to work on. We need to engage the day, that we're not so good left utterly to our own devices. <laughs> well, and, and, and so the, the role of ceremony comes in, and, and particularly in South America where you're engaged in, uh, you pay it forward in, in many indigenous cultures. You say thank you first, and your action of being in gratitude and doing a ritual that reflects your heart full of gratitude helps to keep the machinery going, you know, so that you have to participate because all the spirits of nature are always given to you, but it's, it has to be a circle. I, I love that idea of the wheel of Aini in mm-hmm. uh, the Andes, the yeah. whole idea that you have to put, it's like you're part of the water that turns the water wheel, you know, that it has to be a machine that's moved like a great, like a great wheel or a, a, you know, gears meshing. Your effort, your energy is required to keep the machine going. And it's not and when, the only And when we energy. don't participate, we're just a big, big clog in the pipes. Exactly. <laughs> big well, old the, air ball the in the pipes of Aini. <laughs> <laughs> Here's an image that is going to stay with me. Um, <laughs> the idea that uh, I think it does stop, start to break down. Mm-hmm. You know, in the yeah. same way, if you have someone in your contact list who, you know, they never call, they never write, after a while, they follow the contact list. Yeah. And I think the same thing happens in the natural world, in the world of the spirits around us, if we become disconnected, because everything is vital to the whole. So if we withdraw, we're impacting the whole. Yeah. You know, our energy is just as needed as the, the plants and the trees and the animals. We're, we are part of one great oneness. You know, we're a part of that. So with, when we withdraw, we make impacts that we, I think we're only beginning to understand the kind of impact. It's not just that we do uh, intentional damage which we certainly do as human beings, but in withdrawing our energy, we do another kind of damage. Yeah, yeah. And so participatory is important, and, and understanding that, that, that intimacy is, is kind of the baseline. And, you know, and there's another piece that I see with people sometimes, which is the people that um, in that, inti- you know, something about intimate relationship is not only do we want to participate, but we also need to know where our boundaries are and to say no when we need to say yes and when we need to say no. And these people whose, you know, illness is occurring because there's they're just being overrun with their connection to everything and they can't sort out who's on first and where they stand themselves. You know? Yeah. And that's another part of participation is 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 I am I am part of this big oneness. I'm I'm not the center of everything, <laughs> but I do need to be here. And do my part. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, Bola, you quote a really beautiful uh, quote from Bola saying that the shaman's relationship with the spirits and the sacred depends on the personal relationship they have with themselves. And if they have a very deep relationship with themselves, high awareness and an open heart, deep confidence in what they do, and a belief in themselves, then their relationship with the outside world will be harmonious. Was wondering if he said anything about what happens when we don't have that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think you already started to state it. You know, there is, you know, we talk about having no ego. Uh, that's a very common, uh, you called it a knuckleheaded new age idea, which I like that. I love that expression. <laughs> the idea that we have to be completely devoid of any ego. I think we need some ego to define the edges of who we are. And in defining the edges of who we are, those boundaries, as you say, then we, then we have to figure out, okay, what goes on the inside? 
what needs to be on the inside, what needs to be sorted through on the inside, some of that stuff needs to go because it's old programming, it's erroneous beliefs about ourselves and the world. So we have to do that work of um, attending to our house. And as we do that, we are much more able to then be in connection with what lies outside the edges of our boundaries. And I don't think of them as as, um, rigid boundaries like walls, but they are what define us. They define us as an individual. And they sort of are the definitions of the edges of our personality because our spirit is able to flow into all that is. But those those edges of where our personality defines itself by the, the person that we see on their driver's license or in our passport, that gives us the uh, ability to choose how we want to move this vehicle forward. How do we want to take the life that we have, this embodiment of our spirit right now, that we know as the, again, you know, the person you see in the mirror, how do we take that forward? So it requires a lot of steps of intentionality to continue to clarify what is on the inside, how is this inside relating to what is all around me. It becomes a kind of practice in and of itself. And when we, I think where we can stumble as human beings is either by paying too much attention to the inside so we become insular or turn everything to the outside and let our boundaries fall away. It has to be this dance between how can I remain intact as a being and still be connected to all that is. And so that's that's an interesting dance to have to do and it requires that kind of intentionality. We have to continue to sort and and look at our motives at any particular time and keep checking in with ourselves. It, again, it does become a kind of a kind of intentional practice to be a strong practitioner. Yeah, and it's always changing. So it's not like, oh, I did my boundary work five years ago. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did healing once, you know. Yeah, absolutely. We have to attend to it because we're we're always challenged as we grow. You know, we have to catch up all of us. So we're having new experiences every day. If we're lucky, we're having, you know, several new experiences every day. And we have to continue to catch up the personality, catch up how we're relating to our own spirit, catch up where where are my boundaries on this? This is a new experience. What do I do? How do I hold myself and still remain in connection. It has to be that kind of dialogue all the time. And again, it's it's part of being in good, right relationship to always attend your own garden, even when you're in relationship with an other. And it can be an other human being and, and other whatever. I mean, that's the role of the shaman, in, in I think, in, in simplest terms, is to be that one who negotiates with the other. Yeah. You know, so to do that, we have to know our own motives. We have to know, we have to know our shadow really well. Because I always say the shadow denied is the one that will bite us in the butt, for sure. <laughs> Precisely. So, <laughs> so in terms, and this is kind of like at the risk of being ridiculous, since you've written an entire book that is really beautifully lays out things to do, you know, practices for people to begin. I'm going to ask uh, two questions. So let's say people are, are really inspired by this idea of creating this reverent participatory relationship because they're realizing that it's kind of been all in their head. Wonderful, mm-hmm. but kind of in their head. So f- let's ta- think about there's totally beginning people who are just awakening to shamanism and then there's also practitioners so for beginning people that are like okay i get it i I, reverent participatory relationship how how would i begin if i'm just beginning in shamanism what what might be a beginning thing someone could you know wake up tomorrow and do i think the very first thing and i think this is profoundly important for us uh, those of us who happen to have European roots, particularly Northern European roots, because we've done a, a we've made a whole lot of mistakes about 
thinking that the sacred land is over the next hill. <clears throat> we've um, we've managed to colonize all different places on the planet and subjugate uh, indigenous people in that pursuit. So the very first thing I would say to beginners is to remember that the sacred land is where you are right now. If you are in a, an urban setting, you live in an apartment, the ground under that apartment is sacred ground. The little trees that are planted in the you know, those little squares that they cut out of the sidewalk, that is a sacred tree. This is where you are planted, and in nurturing your relationship to the sacred land where you are, you will not only change your experience of being there, you will transform the place where you live. Because you, through relationship, will call more spirits to that place. You will enliven the spirits of the natural world, and that is your role as a shamanic practitioner, even if you're just taking baby steps. So the first thing I would say to them is the sacred land is right there. Yeah. It's not some pretty place somewhere that you see in the book. I, and I have to say it drives me personally crazy that there are practitioners in the United States that their entire spiritual practice is based on the... Um, sacred places in another hemisphere. Right. <laughs> I've been known to say a few things about that myself. <laughs> to me, this is completely maddening because it 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 is uh, not the spirit of the tradition at all. Right. And, you know, for far more generations than, than we can imagine, we were in in a context of the natural world, we knew the plants, we knew the trees, we knew the particular mountain that we were near, the outcropping of rock, the lake, the river, whatever it might be. We knew them intimately. We had to. As hunter-gatherers, we had to be in relationship with all the beings around us to be able to survive. And so that being connected to where you happen to be planted and then honoring those spirits is how shamans operate. You can, you can understand, uh, you know, we use the South American example. You're in the Andean tradition. You honoring they're honoring the spirits of these mountains, and it makes complete sense why you would honor the dominant spirits of these particular mountains that are around Cusco. It makes complete sense because they are the predominant landscape feature. They are powerful beings. Well, it doesn't make sense if you live in a suburban house in, you know, somewhere in the United States to be honoring those mountains as your primary connection to spirit. What is it in your environment that is powerful? And it can be very, very small. It doesn't have to be a mountain. To honor those connections that we have, however small, the little book that's down the street, a particularly old tree that's in the neighborhood, those things can be sources of power. We share power as shamanic practitioners, and they can be touchstones for us to the rest of the natural world. In that connection, we then re-inspirit ourselves, and we nurture those spirits. We nurture that tree. We nurture that brook in a way that makes them more vibrant and then other people go, oh, we need to take care of that brook. Oh, we need to do this. People start to notice what is around them. So what would you say for people that are, are sort of established in their own shamanic practice? Where would they begin? Um, would it be the same place or would you give them a different idea of where to begin to start to cultivate a truly intimate, reverent, participatory relationship with spirit? I think I, I'd start in the same place, and I would add something important, because if, if, uh, somebody who's been practicing shamanism for a while has relationships with spirits already. They may have a primary teacher, a power animal, a particular place where they do offerings. I would ask those spirits, I'm ready now for my doctorate program. You know, What is it that I need to do to take the next step in my practice? What is it that you want me 
to do, to be able to open ourselves and ask those spirits that we trust implicitly and go, I'm ready to walk through the next door. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to do this because we don't know what lies on the other side of that door. But to me, I think we... My heart is telling me that that's the next step we need to take. If we really do have this gift of being able to connect and dialogue with the spirits that are all around us, it means we have the opportunity to be their voice with our peers. It means we have the opportunity to negotiate their needs within the human world. We have a we have a responsibility. You know, I, I think of um, I think of our culture as kind of like a 19 year old. They want to drive the car, but they don't want to pay for the insurance <laughs> or the gas. Or the gas. And so I think, I think our next step as a people, and particularly as shamanic practitioners, is to step up and take the responsibility that the power we have been given implies. In ancient times and even fairly recent times in indigenous cultures, the shaman was an intermediary, speaking on behalf of spirits of the animals, the birds, the landscape features, negotiating harmony. You know, we're so out of balance and so out of harmony as human beings. We, because we can dialogue with all these others, including other human beings, we can step into the role of facilitating harmony. We can't impose harmony, but we can be facilitators. We can support the beings around us to come to a place of balance, come to a place of better health, come to the place of harmony. And we don't know, just like a, a good negotiator, we don't know what's going to have to, what pieces have to move around for that to happen. All we can do is be in connection, be in relationship, and facilitate that communication. Yeah. Okay. So there's another place in your book where you start talking about the E word, <laughs> emotions, and you talk about the creative power of emotions. Um, would, would you want to go there a little bit here today on the show? Maybe start with, first off, I guess, the distinction that you're making between emotions and feelings and then where we really get this power. Well, I think our emotional body, our, our feelings, have been incredibly misunderstood since, you know, the, the age of reason came upon us. Um, I think, therefore, I am. Um, and mostly it becomes I think, and therefore I'm completely out of touch. <laughs> so <laughs> the uh, understanding this, this complicated internal technology that seems to often bollocks up the works, I think, is really important for us. And I differentiate between emotions and feelings. I think of emotions as super simple. They're like input from the environment. They're mad, sad, glad, and scared. Mm-hmm. And that's information that you're getting from the environment. Feelings are what happens when we take that input and then we process it internally. And we process it based on every other time we've felt that input. So it's going up into the head where we have all these experiences of the last time we felt that in that bus and so. And so out come feelings. So in a circumstance where there feels, um, you have 10 people in the room and they've all come to the 28th of the month and their paycheck is not going to make it to the 31st. Uh, each one of those people will have a different set of feelings that go with it. They may initially feel scared. All of them feel that, that input from the environment like, what will? But each one will have a different feeling that comes out of them. One may have shame. One may experience plain old anxiety. One may have a lot of self-judgment because, oh my God, I'm in this place again. So feelings are very much um, synthesized from our previous experience and the judgments and perceptions that we have about those experiences. And then this is what gets projected out into the world because our feelings are actually energetic information that gets that is output 
And there's a wonderful body of work by the Institute of Heart Math, which is mm-hmm. one of great, great information. They've been doing research since the early 90s. And if you go to their website, there's a whole research section where you can pull up all the scientific papers. They've recognized that our emotional energy, our feelings that are projected from our body have been measured uh, to to have effects a half a mile away. They had, uh, one of the studies, they had uh, donor DNA in two different labs a half a mile from each other. In one lab, the uh, donor DNA is being uh, held by a person who's very adept at recalling circumstances that create uh, feelings. And they were able to change the conformation state that's the shape of the molecule, either wound much more tightly onto itself or relaxed, by the way they were feeling. What was interesting is the sample of DNA in their presence reacted, but so did the one half a mile away, and it reacted without any time lag. So, again, this is not their DNA. It's a donor sample, and they are able to change the way that that molecule is shaped simply by how they feel. This was very powerful for me when I learned this in a uh, long time ago at this point because it explained to me the phenomenon of mob mentality. You know, where some, suddenly somebody is so angry in a group of people and then the whole crowd goes out of control. How does that happen? You know, they didn't like pass messages to one another. Something volatile happened inside of them. So it changes our environment, our feelings change our environment. So learning how to work with, I'm dropping the phone, hang on. Learning how to um, work with our inner technology is part of what we need to do with shamans. Because again, it's, a, it's something that impacts the environment. So, you see it there. So then... I mean, what I one of the things that I, I I feel that I've observed when I am with tribal shamans is that there isn't the same um, great divide between um, thinking and feeling, and so there um, it's almost as if their emotional template, for example, in the middle of the ritual, just becomes more information for them about how to work with spirit versus some some personal thing they fall into and I don't I haven't really seen that with more western trained practitioners that there's either no emotion or the emotion is sort of indulgent and Mm -hmm. I think what's missing in that is what you're talking about is how do we begin to be healthy with this aspect of our being so that it becomes a source of power exactly and that, again, we're taking responsibility for our feelings. I think we don't do that very well in our culture either. We tend to get them all over each other and not taking, resp- you know, and not taking responsibility for, I am feeling this. You can't make me have feelings. You know, we do a lot of blaming and carrying on in our culture. These are feelings I'm experiencing. Why am I experiencing this? Because the reason is I've taken that input from outside and I've, shoot it around inside my head based on all my previous experience and the perceptions I have and what's coming out of me are feelings. So I have the ability to go through and look at those perceptions. How can I change my responses? Not to shut my my feelings down, far from it, but to learn how to work with them in a better way so that I'm not constantly either polluting the environment with negative emotion or disrupting my own inner environment at the same time, how do I come to the place where I recognize that I, I can either disrupt or create harmony in any moment? I have that capacity as a co-creator being. All of us do. So how do I want to use that responsibility? And how do I want to be able to receive the input my, from my environment and understand where the other beings are? Again, that is a place of open-heartedness. And it's only through 
going through my own perceptions and learning how to work with my own reactivity that I can be in the place where I can receive somebody else. You know, it has to be this, again, like when we started this conversation, we have to keep sorting through our own little box of tricks there to keep refining. Because I think as we refine our own our own pile, you know, clear some of that stuff out of the way, continue to clear it out of the way, it opens us to much more possibility of holding power. It opens us to having much more deep relationships. It opens us to a kind of, um, oh, a magnificent and profound kind of connection that is also very gentle. I mean, there's a kind of tenderness to it. It's that knowing right down to your toes that you are loved by the world around you and that you love the world around you. It's this just... Um, Oh, it's a sense of being held and upholding at the same time. Well, this is the thing that I really see in, um, you know, as you were mentioning yourself in the book about indigenous shamans, is this joyfulness. And, you know, we can't really be joyful if we're already full of a bunch of other stuff. (laughs) Right, right, right. You have to have room and you have to be willing to be quiet. And you have to be willing to allow yourself to change and evolve. Yeah. You know, we can't cling to any, in some ways, you can't cling to any belief of this is the way it is because in that same moment, it can be evolving and changing. Yeah. Yeah. And so it seems to me that, you know, in, in your book, in, in inviting uh, people onto a path of being able to cultivate this reverent participatory relationship. You know, intimacy is, is a, the capacity for intimacy is really critical to, 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 in spite of the fact that we're Westerners and have had the lives we've had, that we must cultivate that capacity. And, and a big piece of that is changing our relationship with our emotional body. We can't, we can't hope to be intimate with others if we haven't cultivated intimacy with ourselves and in the doing of that decided, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that's not really serving me. (laughs) Maybe I need to to mulch some of these old emotional patterns so something else could grow in my life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the benefit of that is, you know, is the prize of that kind of intimacy. You know, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting dance, you know, when people are getting together as a couple, you know, that sense of opening to the risk of being, you know, am I going to be received or rejected? Is there going to be an edge that we bump into that we can't go any further? There's some courage that's involved with being in an intimate relationship. But the benefit is to experience yourself and the other in a way that would not have been possible if you didn't take the risk. You know, there's this profound change that happens to us when we really open up, again, in an intimate relationship. We are kind of wired, I think, for a relationship. We're wired to experience the world differently in relationship. And not just differently, but more profoundly. You know, I think we're, we're social animals. So something happens to us, a kind of alchemical change happens to us that triggers us to evolve and change more deeply in the presence of another, in the presence of many others. And so if we're willing to take the risk, and it is a risk, and it's a constant risk, you know, we have to continue to be courageous in our lives. The prize in that is to fall more and more deeply in love and feel ourselves to be more and more deeply loved. It has to go both that, ways, like you said. Oh, yes. Yes, it has to go both ways. But again, you, we have to have courage to do that. I think it's, in many ways, the shamanic path really is a warrior's path. It's a heart-centered path, but it's a warrior's path. It's a path of taking action. Again, not being passive, but being in that place of negotiating harmony stepping forward, speaking for those that cannot speak. 
you know, d- doing our part to improve the situation by facilitating, not by imposing our will, but by facilitating what would be the best outcome for all the participants in any particular place. Yeah. So, Evelyn, as we're growing near the end of our hour here, is there anything else that you'd, you'd like to say in, in, as, as a kind of a last, a parting, a parting thought to the listeners? Just to encourage people to, for those of you who are experienced practitioners, to look for ways to push the envelope even further, to open your heart even more deeply, to, above all, do not fall into despair. If you find yourself falling into despair at the situation that you see in the world, Find the place of courage inside of you to take another step. Find a way to continue to move forward because we need all of us to move forward. Peter Russell told a story, oh, it's almost uh, 12, 13 years ago. I was teaching at a conference in uh, New Mexico, and he said for the for a meta paradigm shift, to happen in the population, what we would refer to as the 100th monkey syndrome, or that big revolution to happen, he devised, he had a formula. And the formula is the square root of 1% of a population. When the square root of 1% of the population gets it, gets some new idea, some new way of being, and really is living it, there is a revolutionary shift in the entire population. So for 7 billion people which is how many of us are on the planet right now, that is about 8,300 people. And not just intellectually getting it, but really living it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, living in this new way. If we step into that way of really being in reverent participatory relationships, both inside ourselves and with the beings around us, we can change the way everyone experiences the world. And I think that's a doable number, you know? 8,300 people is a doable number. We can do this, and all we have to do is our own part, because all around the world, people are doing their own part. And we never know when we'll tip the scale, but it's a worthy uh, worthy path to be on. Well, I've heard, um, I also hear you saying that... Um for those of us who are already on the good red road, take the next step. You know, that we need to not get comfortable in what we've gotten good at, but to take the next step and continue yeah. to, to help to move um, all, all of us, you know, to move out of that place so someone else can fill it and move on because we do have this gift of communicating with spirit and we do have this particular role and an aspect of it, like you said, is to lead even not necessarily presidential leadership, but to lead in this other facet of how to live in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Evelyn, I want to thank you for writing a book that someone could go by and read and do. Of course, you can't just read it, y'all. You got to do what's in it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, someone could say, okay, I want to do that. I want to be the person who, from wherever I am on my path, can take these next steps. How do I do this? And I just want to really thank you and your helping spirits and all the, the many shamans and the people that inspired you um, to to gather this this wisdom that you've gained over these years and, and laying it out for people to just pick it up and and walk it and um, helping us to move forward, like you said, in a good way, in a good way. So thank you. And, and I want to thank you for doing the work that you do. You, you are bringing this, uh, this particular broadcast and all your broadcasts to people that might not have access in any other way, and that's a great gift. So I thank you for your work as well. Thank you, Evelyn. And so I want to give thanks to uh, your ancestors for dreaming of a better future so you could be with me here now, part of the living. <laughs> and thanks to the ancestors of all those um, who are listening and will listen. And um, just much gratitude for the earth below, the sky above, 
and the heart that unites all of us. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week.